Welcome to Cast Conversations, a monthly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Editor's Note. This podcast was recorded remotely, and the sound quality is not up to our usual high standard, but we assure you that the quality of the content more than makes up for any deficiency in the audio. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek, and I'm an Assistant Executive Director for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Today, I have an important guest to talk with us about the very serious topic of extremist violence. During this podcast, you'll learn how to identify behavioral indicators to help prevent and facilitate interventions. Our special guest today is Supervisory Intelligence Analyst John Paul Castro. He currently supervises a cadre of intelligence analysts and staff operations specialists who provide tactical and strategic analytical support to counterterrorism and criminal matters throughout western Pennsylvania and all of West Virginia. John Paul Castro is considered a subject matter expert on radically motivated violent extremism, formerly white supremacy extremism, threat matters, and has worked for the FBI for over 30 years providing investigative and analytical support to a host of high-profile counterterrorism and counter-drug investigations. Over the past three years, John Paul Castro has dedicated a great deal of his time conducting outreach and providing information to academic, law enforcement, and community partners regarding the threat posed by violent extremists and mass casualty attackers with the goal of empowering community members to aid in the identification of mobilization indicators and the implementation of basic intervention strategies designed to prevent extremist violence. John Paul Castro has received numerous awards throughout his career for outstanding achievement in the areas of intelligence analysis and operational support, including the 2016 FBI Director's Award for Excellence in Training and Professional Development. We're fortunate to be able to talk with Supervisory Intelligence Analyst John Castro. Welcome, John. Welcome you as well. Good morning, uh, Rosie, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to your association members. Like I said, we're so excited that you're here. So let's begin this conversation by defining several important terms for our listeners. First of all, what is the difference between a violent extremist and a mass shooting and or mass murderer? The bottom line is one word difference is ideology, but let's unpack it a little bit. A violent extremist is actually an individual who engages in the planning, preparation, commission, or facilitation of some act of violence with the goal to achieve some political, religious, social, or economic objective, whatever that may be little bit different on the mass shooting side because a lot of times we don't know what the actual ideological motivation is. And a lot of times there really isn't any. It's more of a personal grievance narrative, which we'll discuss as we get into this a little bit more. But the bottom line is a violent extremist and a mass shooter, the FBI considers a mass shooter an individual who engages in a mass casualty attack that takes three or more lives not including the shooter. So you can see that's a pretty high bar in and of itself. So we actually even have a third thing that we talk about a lot, and that's active shooters. And that's an individual who uses a firearm to engage in an act of violence. And that's typically what we see, obviously, in schools. Wow. Okay. And we have a couple other terms I'd like to define as well. So what's the difference between the process of radicalization 
and mobilization. Well, radicalization, which I tell you is focused tremendously on in the media, is really not as important as mobilization, but it is a process. It is a continuum. Radicalization is a process where an individual or a group kind of takes on or adopts an extreme political, social, or religious ideal, and they reject the status quo, and they then try to move toward mobilization, which is enforcing that idea upon others as the norm because they see it as just. So radicalization, a person can be radicalized and take a long time or never even get to the point of mobilization, but it is mobilization that we are most concerned about and want to prevent. So mobilization is when that individual then takes whatever their ideology or whatever their viewpoint is and wants to take it out on the world and enforce that ideal on the world and so engages in an act of violence. So that's kind of the difference there. What I would like to say, though, is keep in mind that if I talk to every one of us, we probably have radical views on some issue or another. And that's okay. All right? So the radicalization point of this is not as important. It's when we're willing to then engage in violence, or we get to the point of engaging in violence to enforce that radical norm on someone else. And that's when it gets scary. Yes. Yes. Okay. So hopefully that clarified those terms for people, because I know we'll be using those as we go through um, the presentation. So my next question is, because I know that you've been working with us so much, could you just summarize for us what is known about violence and extremism, such as the demographics, the profiles, and key characteristics of people committing such acts? Yes. So there really is no demographic profile. I know we like to hear that a lot, particularly, again, in the media. But the demographic profile, when you look at statistics, are pretty sparse. What we do see, if we really want to look at a sex and demographic, we see white males are the primary offenders. So over probably over 60% of individuals who engage in these attacks are white males, whether it be a violent extremist attack or an active shooter attack. And significantly more when we're just talking about males, all right? Okay. So white males are probably the demographic. But the problem is that doesn't tell us anything about what motivates these attacks, and therefore it doesn't help us with prevention. Demographics and profiles very rarely do. So what we tend to focus on more is not the demographic, but on the behavioral indicators that are consistent across the demographics of these active shooters. Because we've had active shooters as young as six years old in Michigan back in 2000. And we've had active shooters, violent extremists as old as 88 years old. You remember the individual attacked the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. So if we focus more on demographics, we are going to miss the boat. So it's behavioral indicators that we focus on. So one of the big questions that we all find ourselves asking over and over again after each incident is why. Why do you think these people are motivated to engage in these attacks? You know, I find it funny. We always ask why. but these individuals tell us why. 
we don't even need to ask. What we have found in looking at active shooters and violent extremists who have engaged in mass casualty attacks, whether it be school shootings or whether it be an actual attack against a religious facility or a group of people, whatever it may be, what we find is that they always tell us why through what we call their grievance narrative. So they have a grievance, and they express that grievance. We don't have to guess about it. And what I mean by a grievance narrative is exactly what the word itself means. There's a grievance that they are carrying that they think they have to act to try to resolve or to try to eliminate that grievance. They feel that it's their job to act, and that's where we get into the mobilization piece. But let's look at some examples, because I think the examples help to clarify exactly what we're talking about. So you take Omar Mateen. This is the individual who engaged in the Pulse nightclub shooting, the largest attack against LGBTQ people since the Holocaust, okay, in Orlando, remember? Right. So the bottom line is, while he's engaging in that attack, he's on a phone call with police through 911, and he tells us flat out. He's doing this, he tells us, because you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They're killing innocent people. What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. That is a collective grievance narrative. And when we look at that collective grievance narrative, one that is often pushed by foreign terrorist organizations such as ISIS and previously by Al-Qaeda, it's, hey, you have to be involved in trying to resolve this problem. The problem is we're bombing Syria and Iraq. Innocent children and women are being killed. And then the organization or group that is trying to radicalize and mobilize these people twists that grievance narrative and says, we're doing it, meaning the U.S. and the West, to try to eradicate Islam from the earth. And as we all know, Islam is the largest religion, uh, has the most followers in the world, and certainly growing all the time. So that is not the goal of the airstrikes, obviously, nor is it to kill innocent women and children. But let's look at some of the white supremacist ones that we have seen, because those are the ones we're seeing more and more each and every day. You take Brenton Tarrant, the New Zealand shooter. I only wish I could have killed more invaders and more traitors as well. He's telling us why he's doing it. He's holding up his thesis, The Great Replacement, where he's talking about the threat to the white race by immigrants by immigrants having more children than white males. And so he's saying, hey, we are equating immigrants with invaders. Very, very different terms, but a term that white supremacists are using synonymously now. You look at Patrick Crucius, the individual who drove all the way across Texas to kill people in El Paso, at the Walmart in El Paso. Flat out, he tells us, in his writings, this attack is in response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. So we don't need to guess. The grievance narratives are very consistent. And the interesting thing about the grievance narratives, particularly the collective ones, 
is that when you put them all together, whether it be an ISIS threat actor or whether it be a white supremacist, even though the grievance narratives may vary a bit, they're often pretty consistent. And what's more telling is the behavioral indicators associated with them mobilizing to the point of engaging in violence to enforce this grievance narrative, those behavioral indicators are almost identical, regardless of the ideological bent. So it's telling us ideology is way less important than behavioral indicators. So we always tell people to be vigilant, and if you see something, say something. What are those specific behavior indicators that all of us administrators, faculty, and staff, parents, and students, what should we be paying attention to? How do we try to figure out that somebody might be, you know, having a grievance narrative going on based on some of the behaviors that we should be watching for? The primary behavioral indicator is leakage. And what I mean by leakage is individuals who are moving down the path from radicalization to actual mobilization often express their intent to engage in these acts before they commit the act. The problem is we ignore that. We often further marginalize the person, push them aside, and say, no, that's not appropriate talk. We're not even going to engage with you. In fact, that's the worst thing we can do. Now, I'm not telling anyone that they should put their safety at risk. That is not what we're talking about here. But believe it or not, particularly since you're a school association where you're talking to teachers, staff, etc., the leakage among students and juveniles is much, much higher even than the remainder of the population. So there are estimates that individuals, kids, who are going to engage in school shootings in particular or some act of violence in the school, mass attack, upwards of 80 to 96 percent, and the statistics vary, 80 to 96 percent leak their intent to engage in that attack to someone. And that someone is generally a person that is a significant person to them, be it a teacher, be it a coach, be it a parent, be it a fellow student. So what that tells us is there is an opportunity there for intervention. Now, there are other indicators. Leakage is one. One of the other indicators that is very, very high up is social isolation and marginalization. And what I mean by that is not a typical isolation or individuality that you would see with teenagers where they like their own domain and sometimes they want privacy to be part of their domain. I'm not talking about that kind of of isolation where I go to my room and that's my castle. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about dropping out of life, not being interested in anything, not motivated. And believe it or not, there are individuals out there, on the Internet in particular, because almost all of this recruiting and radicalization occurs online now. There are individuals out there who are able, through interactions over the web, to be able to identify and target some of these individuals, particularly juveniles, that are socially isolated or marginalized. 
And what they do is a typical old-fashioned recruitment. They identify their social isolation. They surround them with like-minded people so that they now have a circle of friends who form an echo chamber to reinforce the grievance narrative. And then they begin pushing propaganda that supports that grievance narrative. So propaganda dissemination is a huge one. If if kids in particular, but anyone that's going down this path, if they are consuming massive amounts of violent propaganda, first off, it certainly reinforces the grievance narrative and it desensitizes them to violence. So that's a huge indicator. Another one is studying past attacks or praising past attacks. This is very true when we're talking about the personal grievance narrative of a school shooter, because I can tell you over and over again, these kids who engage in mass shootings at schools, we find that they often have done research almost every time, almost every time, have done research on prior school shootings or have been infatuated with prior school shootings such as Columbine. So that is an indicator. What are kids talking about, searching, looking at, studying? If they're studying Columbine, they're studying prior school shootings, it's a huge indicator. Another indicator that we look for is a history or a fascination with violence. The history of violence meaning a lot of these individuals who engage in these attacks have prior domestic violence issues at home, get into fights in school. So there is a history of violence there. A lot of them are very infatuated or obsessed with gear, military gear and the like, such as armor plating, things like that, flak jackets, things that, believe it or not, kind of also enforce that history of violence piece. Because they're preparing for something, and that's a huge indicator. So these are some of the indicators that we see. And it's people, meaning we, not the FBI, not law enforcement, we as community members, parents, teachers, coaches, mentors. We are the ones that may have that significant relationship with kids, and they may leak some of this to us. And we are the ones that have to engage and act. Because if we don't, no one else is going to see a lot of those indicators necessarily. Exactly. And then this kid can move down that path to mobilization. Okay, so if you have a kid that's always dressed in camouflage or whatever, you probably wouldn't be as concerned as if you started to put some of these other pieces together. So is it really kind of looking at those patterns? And again, probably when the student says, hey, I'm thinking about whatever they might want to do. Is that yeah. when you when you really start to get worried? I mean, when should an administrator or teacher really start to get worried? Because you see kids who might come dressed in black, or you see kids who might be lonely, isolated, disconnected, not wanting to belong. But when when do you really start to put those pieces in place? Or is it the earliest intervention? Like when you see something, you really start to watch this kid and monitor. I think the key to all of this and what we have found in research is that the primary prevention technique is dialogue. And so why I would say the earliest dialogue 
engaging, bringing the person out of that isolation is the, is the best practice. And teachers in particular are very, very good at this. They typically know their students. I don't care if they have hundreds of them. They right. tend to know their students very well. And they can tell when something is not right with a kid. Right. And believe it or not, just the dialogue, the care, the connection helps. Now, when we're looking at these other indicators, I don't want to give you the um, conception, the misconception that there is uh, a nice handy-dandy checklist that we can go off and say, well, he has six indicators. We better do something now. Right. This is human behavior. It's very difficult. But what I would say is anytime we can safely dialogue and not dispute, anytime we can actually discuss in a respectful, kind way the grievance narrative, particularly in schools where you have the ability in some classes like social studies, etc., to kind of explore some of these grievances, all right, that's an opportunity. And those opportunities may be the primary method by which we prevent a person moving down this path to mobilization. Yeah. So I would say as early as, po as possible, as often as possible, and when you see some of these indicators and we see this person progressing down into these indicators, there comes a point where that behavior has to be addressed. I like to compare it in the old days, because I'm an older guy, right, <laughs> to suicide. As right. crazy as that sounds, in my day, suicide touched every family, but no one wanted to talk about it. It was a closeted issue. It was almost as if it was a mark on the family's reputation. Right. Now, if a kid comes into school today and he talks about, I think I want to kill myself or I, I have no hope. They get all kinds of assistance, all kinds of support, and that's the way it should be. It should be identical with this issue. Right, right. And, and I like that dialogue is like the first thing that we should be doing, and we should be doing it often because that's something that, as you said, teachers and administrators, educators, and even down to your custodian or the cooks, that's something yes. that we can all do. Correct. And I, again... I'm not talking about you getting into a safety-related issue. We're talking about day-to-day -day dialogue, engaging. And I want you to keep in mind, one of the big issues that we talked about is this echo chamber. And this echo chamber, particularly for young people right now, is very powerful because of the online ability for people to engage or not engage. Um, it's a little bit different in face-to-face, -face, right? Right. So I, I think the face-to-face -face piece has the ability oftentimes to break through what normally is a very controlled communication back and forth online. If I don't like somebody, I block them. If I like them, all right, I start sharing information with them. It's a little bit different in the face-to-face -face real world. And I think kids need that. We all need that. That's part of our being a human being. So, Absolutely. So every violent attack is devastating and so difficult for us to understand and process. There just aren't words, I think, to describe how all of us are left feeling after each attack. And it seems like we're having more and more of them. 
And the cliche, I wish that I would have known then what I know now, must be true for these violent attacks as well. Let's take one of the many school shootings from the past, let's say Nicholas Cruz in Parkland. What were some of the red flags that people could have, should have paid more attention to, and what lessons have we learned? So I think first off, Parkland is a great example because a lot of the indicators were certainly there and the indicators were ignored not only by people within the school, but by the FBI and by some of the local police for a certain extent. Now, again, that isn't criticizing anyone. It's a matter of what we can do, what we can't do, what we have time to do. I get it. But I do think we need to think a little bit more about how we invest in prevention more than how we invest in protecting ourselves like in an active shooter, run, hide, fight situation. And we just don't do that enough. So what I would say first and foremost is before we look at Parkland, recognize that it is a we problem. And so we all have the power to kind of weigh in. Now, when we look at Nicholas Cruz, you can see the indicators. I mean, poor Nicholas, his father died when he was six years old. His mother passed away actually in 2017, just months prior to him engaging in the shooting. Right? He certainly posted all kinds of pictures online where he was fascinated with guns pictures online where he had purchased body armor and all of that. So there was stuff out there right off the bat, open, publicly accessible to show he's infatuated with violence. So really paying attention... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so really paying attention to that social media piece is important. Oh, huge. And we will get into that in a minute, but yes, absolutely huge. Because that's where a lot of these kids are living their lives, our lives a lot different than when an old-timer like me grew up, (laughs) uh, you know, where I was face-to-face. I mean, these kids, they're in an online environment. And so a lot of what they do goes online. That's their communication method. And he was like any other kid. He posted pictures of his firearms. He posted pictures of himself in body armor. But there was more to indicate that he had a preoccupation and a history of violence. The police had been called out multiple times to his adoptive parents' home for domestic violence situations where he was engaging in violence against an adoptive sibling and against the adoptive parent. We also had runaway reports from him. So there was a history there already. And then there was a similar history of violence dating back even to 2016 in school where he was fighting with another student threatened to kill a student, in fact, posted out on Instagram a school threat to engage in a school shooting back then. And because of all of these issues, he was even expelled from school in February 2017. He was referred for placement to an alternative school so that the behavioral issues could be addressed and discussed and worked on with him. What's interesting is he soon became an adult. And therefore, he had no obligation to go to that alternative school. So at some point, he drops out of that alternative school. So you can see how this kind of progresses. Now, in August 2017, he makes actual Instagram threats to other students from his prior school that he had been removed from. 
I will kill you, I'm going to shoot you dead. Pretty clear threats of violence, okay? And it wasn't only a threat of violence, as we know, because he ends up killing 17 kids, Mm -hmm. 17 people. So there's more to it even. He trespassed at Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School. He actually showed up, even though he had been expelled, the first day of school in August 2017, and because the information had not filtered down to security, they believed, hey, he's back for the school year, the new school year, I guess. He has finished his period of expulsion, and he's being replaced, and he's back. In fact, there are comments out there where security guards said, hey, Nick, how you doing? Okay, so he actually was in the school in August 2017 for an ex- a period of time until administration figured out, hey, he's not supposed to be here, and he was then removed. Why is that important? That's a potential pre-operational surveillance of what he's going to do in February 2018. So I think it's very important to understand that, that this is not an isolated event. After he goes into the school, you look in September 2017, This is where he posts the infamous, I want to be a professional school shooter comment on YouTube that we had as the FBI, the law enforcement had, but we just couldn't action it at that point. And that's because we probably needed to be way ahead of this curve and have identified the behavioral indicators way prior to this, because at this point he is moving very quickly toward mobilization. So, again, I think we have to think about the prevention piece. We like to look at it in our business as, hey, we're very good at doing investigations after such a critical incident occurs. But then it is too late. Prevention is our number one priority. Not investigation, a lot different than the FBI of years ago. Prevention, particularly when we're talking about counterterrorism or counterviolence, is number one priority. So when we see something like a parkland, we say, we failed. We failed because we didn't identify the indicators and we didn't prevent this attack. So, again, could people having engaged in dialogue with Nicholas have changed this? I don't know. But I know one thing, it wouldn't have hurt. Right, right. It wouldn't have hurt. So anyway, so, it's a ov- very good example. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Uh, so overall then, what can and should administrators or school personnel and their school communities be doing as far as these preventions? You've talked, you know, a little bit about communication and social media, but what specifically can and should we be doing to put those pieces in place? First off, We do a lot of speaking out to schools and staff and community members. And the number one issue is people are not aware of this threat and they're not aware of these indicators. So number one, educate staff, students, and parents on these behavioral indicators. Make it a a prevention piece that parallels with whatever active shooter drills or whatever you have for when an actual critical incident occurs. Because what we see is we're very good at doing the drills 
to prepare for so that it becomes automatic if there is a critical incident. Run, hide, fight. But we are not pairing the education piece of prevention with that piece of action, and we need to do that. So one is educate staff and students regarding these threats and regarding these indicators. Two, provide positive outlets, I think, for discussion of those grievance narratives, particularly in an academic environment. That can be very helpful. Teaching people and kids in particular how to be respectful of others' opinions and how to recognize that every grievance narrative, while twisted a bit, always has a nugget of truth in it. And we have to acknowledge that. So I think there needs to be an understanding and a positive outlet to discuss that. The other piece of that is dialogue, like we talked about. Dialogue from significant individuals to that student, to that person that's moving down the mobilization continuum. Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. And we like to say dialogue, not dispute. If you get into a conflict-based dialogue because you don't agree with something, then you're not going to agree with parts of the grievance narrative. That is why it's outside of the social norms. But there are pieces that you can discuss in a respectful way and provide a dissenting voice or a dissenting idea in a respectful, kind way. So dialogue, not dispute. Those are some of the primary ways that I would say, you know, we students, staff, administrators can kind of begin to work on this problem, particularly with students. And I say that because a lot of these kids go to other kids to leak what their intent is. And so there has to be a mechanism in that school and an education piece where there is an understanding that the first victim is actually the attacker. And that's not popular for a lot of people, but it is 100% true because that kid has been marginalized. There have been incidents that have occurred in his life. There may even be mental health-related issues. That kid can be the first victim, and his reporting it to another kid The other kids that are in that school that are his, quote-unquote, significant contact, if they understand that by reporting that information to an adult, you're saving your friend, and you could be saving many other friends within that school, you're not actually ruining the life of the potential shooter or attacker. You're saving it. That's a I think huge we need concept. to kind of twist that around a little bit to understand what's actually going on here. Exactly. That's huge. That's, that's a huge paradigm shift, I think, for a lot of people. Yes. But if we don't make that shift, just like we had to make that shift over suicide years and years yeah, ago, right. if we don't make that shift, we are going to lose more kids and more people. You know, in situations where we may have been able to prevent it. So, so important. So, if our listeners want to learn more about this topic or resources to, in order to help them plan professional development for their staffs, for their parents, for their students, what resources might you suggest for them? I tell you, believe it or not, FBI.gov and DHS Department of Homes, Homeland Security.gov have some tremendous resources out there, 
specific to countering violent extremism, countering active shooters, not only statistics, but a lot of these behavioral indicators. And I think that's a good place to start. There are numerous studies out there that kind of go through all the nuances of the behavioral indicators and things to look for. And then I think there are also, which is very, very important to understand and to recognize, there are other public sites and public organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, where they spend a lot of time going over some of the signs and symbols associated with violent ideologies. And why is that important? That's important because that's also an indicator. Because remember what I said, if we're talking about recruiting a person, we use that propaganda piece with these signs, symbols, to reinforce that grievance narrative. We then use signs and symbols such as tattoos, such as posters, such as you'll see them at rallies, posters, to reinforce the new identity of the person in that group. So those are great indicators, and they do mean something. The only thing I would caution is, again, you don't want to take one indicator and say, we have a problem. You have to look at the totality. Because, uh, you know, there are some of these signs and symbols that are used for other things that have been hijacked, in essence, particularly when you're talking about racially motivated violent extremists or the white supremacy movement. So, again, those are some of the resources that are out there. I recommend all of them. They're great. Wonderful. That's a great list and a great starting place. And we will list those on our website and send those out to people when we advertise this particular podcast so people can see those. That would be wonderful. Yeah. No, I I think the more help we can give to people on this and the more that people start to understand, especially those behavior indicators, I think the more successful and the safer our schools are going to be. Correct. I absolutely agree. And I can tell you from working cases here and working issues we recently prevented, a school shooting that took about a year of this process, but was successful. It wasn't a shooting, actually. It was a mass stabbing. But there was a specific plot involved in this. So this does happen, and it can be prevented. It can be. It's just just up to us, all of us as people. Exactly. I've heard you talk about the power of one before. Can you just explain that to our listeners? The power of one comes from the concept of preventing one. One of these attacks, and it kind of pairs up with the fact that we, as people, parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, whatever, we as people are the ones that are going to stop these attacks. We're going to identify these indicators. We're the ones that are going to engage in this dialogue. And why the power of one? Because what tends to happen, and particularly on our side, on the law enforcement side, is we look at all of these attacks and say, oh my goodness, we are not going to be able to ever stop this. This is a massive problem. This is awful. Where do we begin? And what's the point? It's it's like complete discouragement. What I tell folks is, Don't focus on stopping everyone. Focus on stopping one. Engaging one student, preventing one of these incidents has a monumental impact that none of us can even really assess 
at this point. For example, we stop an individual kid from shooting up a school. A lot of those end with kids committing suicide or being shot and killed by law enforcement or uh, security at schools. You save the life of that kid. You also save his entire future of whatever he has the ability to do. We don't know what impact he's going to have on the world. We also save the lives and the futures of many other teachers, staff members, students. And we don't know what tremendous, wonderful things, in addition to what they've already done in life, that they're going to do. So we need to focus on the power of stopping one, how important that can be, how life-changing for our communities, for our schools, for our actual world can be. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a little pie in the sky, but it isn't. And realistically, we stop these one at a time. Because the dialogue piece, typically, when it comes to prevention, is a one-on-one -on -one process. Because, again, they often leak this to individuals that are significant to them. So it's a one-on-one -on -one process, and we can stop it one at a time. And that's what we need to focus on, not become discouraged. So that's the power of one. And that's why teachers go into teaching, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm sure it's for the wonderful salary. <laughs> yeah, right? it's, it's, I'm it's sure. Not, okay? <laughs> No. Right. You care about kids, and you care about each kid. Exactly. The power of each kid, one kid. And so I, it's really no different than what you're already doing every day. Exactly. And what I think most educators can wrap their heads around is you never know what you say or what you do. And inevitably, I think every one of us has had students or parents, somebody come back and say, remember when you did blah, 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 and they remember something that you may not even have in your mind anymore, and that changed their life. And you're like, really? You know, but you never Correct. know who you're going to touch. Never. And so... Right. And you don't know what you're even going to prevent. Right. I guarantee you that the teachers and staff you have out there have prevented acts of violence that they have no concept that they've prevented because of the things that you just spoke about. Mm -hmm. That one-on-one -on -one dialogue, that care, that impact I've had on a kid's life. So, yeah, 100%, that is spot on. Yeah, the more we can do that, the better. So you've given us so much to think about during this podcast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you talking with us today. But what's the one or two takeaways that you'd like our listeners to remember from this podcast? Number one is the, the we concept. We are the ones that are going to stop this. And not law enforcement, not even as a teacher necessarily by role or as a staff member or as a, we as people, you know, as a significant person to another person, whether it be a family member, whether it be a student of ours, we are the ones that are responsible for stopping this. Two, it's not rocket science. You know, we're not asking to do a behavioral analysis on people. We're asking people to dialogue, to talk to people in a respectful, a kind manner, to share ideas, to try to show I care about your grievance, and here's what I think about the grievance, and here's what maybe we can do about it in a positive way. 
And three, again, the power of one. Please, we cannot emphasize that enough. That needs to be our motto. Stop one. So those are the things I would like folks to take away. Cool. And I think the other thing I would say is to be able to educate everyone within your school community in order to Correct. be able to help save your friends and, and know that it's important to report what you're hearing because not only might you be saving that friend, that victim, that person who might be going to do something that they shouldn't, but to be able to save that person along with who knows whatever else might have happened. 100%. We stigmatize these things and push them aside because they're uncomfortable. The problem is that's what leads to further isolation. So we need to educate each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to get out there that this is a person struggling. You know, a person who engages in these sorts of attacks, they're struggling with something. And maybe it's the isolation piece that we can break through and carry a little bit of their burden or share a bit of their burden. That alone may be what prevents mobilization. Yeah. comes down to that care and respect. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us today. And I know that I speak for every one of our listeners as well as everyone here at the Connecticut Association of Schools that we can't thank you and your colleagues enough for all the work that you're doing to help keep us as safe as possible. So thanks for everything. And thanks for all you do because, like I said, you and we are all on the front line. So let's do what we do best, and that's care about people, care about kids save lives and change and transform lives in a positive way. That's what this all comes down to. That's what our job is here too. Absolutely. So. Well said. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cast Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.